This special episode of CRST the Podcast is brought to you by Glaucos. You're listening to CRST the Podcast from Bryn Mawr Communications. Hey everybody, Paul Singh here from Southeastern Wisconsin, Glaucoma Specialist, and uh, we're here with two really good friends and amazing colleagues and educators. Uh, Dave and Seb, why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm David Stevens. I'm uh, from Fort Myers, Florida at Tyson Eye, practice uh, cataract, cornea, and glaucoma surgery. Hi, I'm Seb Octane Maureen, a cataract and glaucoma specialist at Harvard Eye Associates in South Orange County, California. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Looking forward to having a great discussion today. You know, we had a previous episode not too long ago uh, where we talked about all the different options that we have, the, the algorithm and kind of all the new tools that we have at our disposal. But let's focus today on some of the kind of pearls and tricks that we've, you've learned and we've all learned with implanting the eyes tent and jack the W, the, the two cents and the nasal angle for cataract patients who have glaucoma as well. And so let's just talk about probably the most important issue that I I faced, I think I still face, is really how to get a good view. So uh, David, just talk about the importance of getting a good view and if there's any pearls that you've learned on how to obtain that good view and what does that mean to have a good view? Yeah, I was lucky to um, be training in the advent of MIGS surgery. It was really exciting. Um, you know, I, I learned MIGS, I think, a little more recently than you guys, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. But um, <laughs> we're old, it's fine. Say it. When Ryan, I was a resident. <laughs> When I was a resident, it was it was really awesome that we were offered the ability to learn eye stent um, in training, and then obviously you know going into fellowship it was very mix heavy. So I think um, you know patient positioning is key at first to learn how far to tilt the patient's head away from you, and um, you know I I tend to you know do about forty five degrees away. Um, the key really for visualization once you learn how to um, get the patient properly positioned is not pushing down hard on the eye with a gonio prism and learning how to float the prism on the eye. And there's different, um, different lenses. Um, and I think finding one that works well in your hands is important. I use um, the angled uh, gonio prism with um, a stabilizer um, on it. It's the, the Birdall stabilizer. So I'm a little bit biased there since uh, he was my fellowship mentor, but um, I think that really helps uh, hold onto the eye. And there's even hands-free um, disposable gonio lenses um, I think, Paul, you use that. Um, and, and so you can utilize the lens with both hands in the eye, which is really helpful at first um, to get a good view. The other thing is um, not pushing down on the eye with the um, with your hand that's holding the eye stent. And so, um, you know, floating in the wound um, in order to, to maintain the view once you started the surgery um, is pretty is, uh, important. Great, great, great stuff. Seth, talk about what does it mean to have a good view? What, what, what kind of view are you looking for? You want to get a good view, just like you want a good dilated pupil for cataract surgery. It really makes a difference in terms of how the surgery is going to go and typically can really affect your outcomes. You know, usually when I get asked about pearls and tips uh, in terms of looking at the angle, there's really two types of generations here. There's going to be that first generation of questions is, how do I actually view the angle? And then once you become more proficient at it is, well, how can we strategically put these stents into areas where we're going to get bigger and better benefits from it? So if you're just starting off with angle surgery, you want to get a really good view. You want to uh, rotate the patient's head. And I always say rotate it enough such that when you're looking through the oculars, you really shouldn't be able to see temporal iris. If you are, then you haven't rotated enough. And then you want to rotate that scope about 30 degrees. But 
Glaucoma isn't perfect. Not everyone can rotate their heads. They have cervical spine issues. We have to be able to accommodate for that. Once you do enough of these procedures, you can sort of get a feel for, hey, this patient really couldn't rotate as much as I want them to. I'm going to have to rotate this microscope a little bit more. And after a while, it becomes more of an art than an actual science to it. Then it brings up that second set of questions where now that you've had a really good view, how can you strategically put these stents in, in areas where you're going to get a better IOP reduction? It's not so much of a matter of getting it into Schlem's canal is, are there better places to put it? Where are those ostea, right, that you mentioned, Paul? If you can really line them up the right way, you can get one spot on. You're going to get a really good pressure reduction. Looking for areas where there's more pigmentation. And you'll know you'll be in better spots once you get the stents put in and you give it a little test. You see the natural blood flow or the blanching of blood flow, and you have a couple of really good videos posted about it. You know you're in the right spots when you can land those stents in. But just like anything else, you're learning how to drive. First, you're aware of everything. Uh, after a while, you're really focusing on higher level things. So take it one at a time, take your time, practice ahead of time, practice with your cataract patients alone if you haven't had much practice before. And then subsequently, as you go, just ask yourself with every case, what could I be doing better? And then just try to get incrementally better as you go along. Yeah, that's great stuff. And recording your cases really does help. You can look back and see, hey, how was that view? You know, we talk about it, getting a good view, that on phosphate we talk about, that being perpendicular. I really think it's important because sometimes I'll see videos where even I've had a hard time and I'm like, I really wasn't on FOSS, meaning the T, I saw this, I saw the TM great, but the TM was kind of facing down. I didn't really see the Surrey body band very well, even though it was a nice wide open angle otherwise. And so that's why sometimes you just take that extra few minutes, turn the scope a little more, even turn the head a little bit more, have the patient look a little bit more nasally, just to kind of get that beautiful perpendicular view. Because the more perpendicular you are, whether, whether it's Eisen or any MIGs, the better chance you have of it seating in the canal the way you want it to as well. Uh, so that's really a big pearl that I've, I've learned, just kind of take that time to get that perpendicular view. And you mentioned sub two, getting those you know two clock hours away, kind of targeting based upon either pigment or reflux of blood. Um, you know, let me ask you guys, how important is it to get two clock hours away from each other? I mean, is there data on that? And, and do you think it's important or do you go crazy making sure you get that second one, two clock hours, or if you're like clock hour and a half, you're like, ah, not a problem. Dave, what do you think of that? I mean, you know, I'm not aware of, of data on spacing between the stents. Um, I'd, I'd love to see that if you guys have it. You know, for me, the most important thing is that the stents are well-placed, um, you know, and that I get both seated really nicely in the TM. I'd much rather have two stents very well-placed with nice blood reflux than really try to stretch um, the distance between the two and maybe place one a little under-implanted. Um, and so I typically, you know, I'm right-handed, and so I can typically go further to the left with stents. And so I'll typically go pretty far to the left so I can maintain that kind of perpendicular orthogonal approach. And then almost straight in front of me or just a little bit to the right for the second stent so that I'm not coming um, too much of an angle to in introduce trocar bias in the placement. So for me, it's just, can I get these really well placed? Are there, you know, visible large episcleral veins, you know, on the contractiva that may, might be a good place? Um, and then beyond that, it's, it, you know, it's, there may be a little bit more of a, a luck involved too, if you really just nail the placement on one of them. Sure. And that, that perpendicular kind of trocar bias is really important. Talk about that, Sev, and what does it mean to have trocar bias and how do you, how do you see that uh, real time? Yeah. Uh, for those of you that are familiar with football, it's like trying to kick the ball through the uprights. I know Paul's a big <laughs> fan there. You, you guys go. score more touchdown than kick field goals. But <laughs> what, what it basically here is the trocar, that center little piece where the stent is going to go through, 
you want to line them up based upon the side so it's down the middle. Once it's down the middle, you're in great place to kick that field goal. Go ahead and let it go. And sometimes that opportunity where everything lined up is just an instant. You, you can't be hesitant about it because as soon as you see it, go for it. You know, it's just like everything else that we do with medicine. Do it with confidence because that view isn't going to last. Either you're going to move or the patient's going to move. So as soon as it's lined up, go ahead and give it, give it a push down, get it, get injected, get it seated right. And I want to point out, David really hit something on the head here. You want to get two cents that are well positioned. We can sit here and have endless discussions about, in theory, the collector channels are this, that, the other thing. Yes, in theory, but you have a practical real life patient in front of you. You need to get two cents well seated, priority number one. Then we can have these discussions about theoretically how far apart they are. You, you have to execute the maneuver correctly though. When I, and one of one pearl I've used, I use the, the wound as my kind of st stabilizer. So I'm going to, to David's point. I go to my left first as much as I'm right-handed. It's a little easier to maintain that uh, perpendicular approach. And I'll use the right edge of the wound and then kind of just kind of go perpendicular, go straight to the left. And then when I do the right stent, the one two clock hours away, around two clock hours away, I use the left side of the wound to stabilize the, the, my, my hand position. And sometimes don't be afraid to turn your chair. You know, maybe when you come out after the first stent, kind of turn your chair, turn your, turn your angle a little bit to give yourself a better ability to get to that right, that second cent two clock hours away. So take your time, no reason to rush. This is the most important thing you guys mentioned. Getting a good seated stent is going to work better than a two clock hour away stent that's not seated well. So that's really important. Um, you know, the other thing I want to talk about too is just, you know, how do you practice? How do you train if you're thinking about, because we still have a lot of doctors out there, there's 40% of doctors who aren't doing cataract MIGs right now still look at Marcoscope data in 2021. So there's a lot of doctors who haven't done MIGs yet, let alone any other uh, stents. And so I was wondering what your thoughts are on how you train doctors or how doctors could be trained if they're not in residency anymore. What, are they, what do they do? So David, any, any pearls on new docs? Yeah, you know, I, I was really fortunate to learn how to do MIGs before I was in practice, like in, in training. And so I had a lot of supervision in that area. Um, I think, you know, getting comfortable with the view is really important. Um, and then, you know, model eyes are really helpful for the actual device use. You know, they're not going to simulate a patient that's moving or snoring or, you know, um, different anatomy. But I think uh, doing model eyes to get used to how the device feels can be really helpful, um, especially when I've incorporated newer um, technologies in practice since I've been out of training, you know, it, trying to get a feel for that and how it works. Um, and then I think, uh, you know, having somebody come observe cases who has have done those, you know, if a physician can come or maybe if, you know, even the, you know, local rep can come and guide you through kind of those first few cases can be really helpful. Absolutely. Great, great stuff. So have any other, any other comments on how you can train anything that you can do before you start your first cases? Yeah, and this is the beauty of innovation, but also the challenge is there's only so much you're going to learn in training at some point you're going to be out there and practicing and something new is going to come out. The question is, how do you learn it? And how do you best incorporate it, especially into your first few cases? And if you're not very familiar with angle surgery, I think doing it at the end of your cataract surgery, just standalone cataracts, put a gonio prism on, take a look at what healthy TM and a healthy angle looks like, appreciate some of the variability, but also appreciate the nuances of how much to rotate the head, how much to rotate the microscope. If you can get those steps down, you're about 80% of the way there should be enough to get a view. Then with everything else, you're just fine tuning, you know, after each case ask, you know, could I have done this better? What would that have been? Or what did I do really good? And 
just try to get incrementally better as you go along. But it's a part of what we have to learn with new innovation coming out is how do you learn to do these new things when you're no longer in a uh, training session? Yeah, really good points. I mean, asking the rep to help you out and they'll, they'll bring a dry, most reps and most companies will give you, they'll get you kind of a dry lab time. They'll let you work with the device, hold it in your hand, get comfortable with it. Uh, and then interoperably, like you said, Seb, you know, after a cataract surgery is done and, and the non mix case, just turn the head and the scope, just get a good view. And then even take a Sinsky or some type of even uh, kind of forceps or cannula and just go into the angle and just kind of just pretend like you're kind of working in that area just to get comfortable with the gonium prism in one hand and your other hand with the whatever device, just so you can kind of get comfortable working in the angle. And that just for the first few cases, because that is probably the number one, I think, issue that doctors are, are afraid of is how do I get that view and how do I maintain that view as well? And we do have, you know, non-contact, I mean, not, not hands-free gonium prisms. I use the eye prism for the most part because a nice wide view is disposable. It has a little cutout, so it doesn't get uh, in, it doesn't get in the way of your hand. So sometimes a lot of these gonium prisms, like a Schwann Jacobs, sometimes if you're pushing against the wound a little bit there, you can push against your device, and it can cause more folds and cause more uh, visceral acid to come out. So that's why to be careful on, on the kind of where you're holding the prism on the cornea. So these are all little things that you can learn as you start doing more cases. But starting out before you do your first case, just by getting a good view is, is really important as well. But once you get that view, almost all these MIGS procedures are, become a lot more comfortable and learning new MIGS becomes a lot more easy when you start to actually learn how to get a good view as well. Um, any other comments, just for the sake of time, on, on how to get a good view or the importance of you know getting uh, a good view or any other pearls for the eye stent in general? Uh, let's say, hypothetically, it doesn't go in. Any on what happens if it doesn't go in right away? Yeah, I think I, one pearl that I learned in fellowship was placing a little bit of dispersive viscoelastic right inside the incision, um, which really helps maintain the chamber really nicely and prevent reflux of viscoelastic out of the eye, especially early on learning. Um, if I bounce a stent um, or I notice it's not seated well, I'll usually go ahead and just go place the other stent where I would normally place it and then come back and use the other clicks on the eye stent inject to fully seat the original stent that didn't look quite like um, it's where it needs to be. Um, and the only other thing I would add is, you know, places like Academy, ASCRS, you know, have MIGS wet labs and, you know, have people that come to, to teach and for, for doctors who are motivated to learn new techniques. You know, I was lucky to do cornea fellowship where we learned DMEC, DSEC, but the majority of cornea surgeons had to learn DMEC and DSEC out in practice. And so I think wet labs at conferences were really important for those doctors um, to learn those techniques and incorporate them once they uh, came back home. No, that's great. Um, Seb, how about you? And, and talk about in case it doesn't seat in very well and talk about how do you prevent heme in general, uh, reflux or post-op heme? You know, I think David hit all the good points there. And I just want to kind of add on to what he was saying is just putting in some viscoelastic that'll help prevent the heme. But if by chance you do bounce one off, go ahead and put the other one in and then come back and get, get the first one. And probably my biggest recommendation is, look, this is just like anything else. Just keep practicing, it'll get better. The first couple of cases are supposed to be hard. The first step of learning something new is not knowing what you don't even know. The next step is knowing that you don't know something. So it just will work through the process. I love it. Great pearls here. I was going to finish up a couple of pearls that I've learned uh, to prevent heme. One of the things I've learned, regardless of what's the eye stand or any other cutting procedure, whatever it might be, um, is when you, at the end of the case, when you're done, you've removed your viscoelastic, you're hydrating your wounds, filling up the eye with BSS, you know, you overinflate it, right? Keep it pressurized. But what I used to do is I used to get it pressurized and then I'd say, okay, good, no reflux of blood. And then I would just go ahead and decompress it to where I want it to be. And then we're done. 
And then very rarely, but sometimes you get some heme next day, right? Not a big deal. It goes away very quickly. Uh, but what I've learned to do is bring them to, you know, again, pressurize the eye to, let's say, upper 20s or low 30s, wherever it might be, then slowly decompress it. Give yourself an extra 15, 10, 15 seconds and do it again. Do a little bit of re removal of this of a BSS, burp the wound. Then do it again and burp it down to a level where you want to be, but not right away. Slowly decompress the eye, giving time for the episcopal venous system and the anterior chamber to equilibrate. The second pearl I would say, this is gonna, and this is something we can't do for the sake of time now, but I have some videos online, is my dad taught me a technique which sounds crazy and barbaric, but as I use these six o silk episcleral bites uh, through, for all my cataract and my cataract mixed patients. This is a six o silk suture for the episclera, not a bridal suture, superiorly and inferiorly, and I clamp it to the drape. So the whole time the eye stays perfectly still. So especially when MIGs, when you're turning the head in scope, what happens, the eye moves perfectly with you and it stays stable. So a lot of times if we're doing, let's say a procedure where even the viscodilating procedure, the eye will torque when you're engaging the, the angle. But with this, these safe sutures, the eye does not move when you're engaging the TM at all with eye sensor or any other procedure. So another way to think about it, if you go online, you can look at some of my videos, you see these little six o silk sutures that allows the eye to stay stable, especially early on. It may be kind of a nice way to help hedge your bets and give you a little bit more stability when you're first starting out as well. Uh, but with that said, guys, this was great stuff. I'm a, for the sake of time, we're gonna call it there, but uh, great stuff. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to hanging out with you guys again for another uh, episode where we talk about some real life cases. So thanks again, appreciate it. <laughs>